Good evening. Gordy and West Cork have spent the day examining the countryside around the house where the 38-year-old French woman, Sophie Toscan du Pontier, was killed. They're looking for the murder weapon, possibly a heavy, blunt instrument with which she was beaten about the head. After a conference of senior officers leading the hunt this afternoon, Gorthy have issued an appeal for information. Today, forensic experts returned to the scene of the murder at Tourmore near Skull, examining the narrow roadway where the body was found on Monday morning for clues to the killing, while a wider search was also carried out for the murder weapon, a heavy, blunt instrument with which the dead woman was beaten several times around the head. Senior Guardi are meeting regularly to review the hunt for the murderer, conscious that the killing has become a major media story in France, where the husband of 38-year-old Sophie Toscan du Plantier is a well-known film producer. He was told of the murder while on holiday in southwest France. Amongst the tasks facing Guardi is a detailed examination of airline passenger lists from France to Ireland as they check the movements of Madame du Plantier, who arrived in Cork on Friday to spend Christmas in West Cork. They want to ascertain whether she arrived alone or with a companion and are asking the public for any information about the movements of the hire car which she used to drive to Skull from Cork Airport and whether she was seen alone in it or was accompanied. The car was a silver grey Fiesta LX registration number 96C14459 which was parked at the site of the holiday home in Skull. There was no sign Welcome to Incriminated. Miss Tuscan de Plantier was born Sophie Andre Jacqueline Buonel on July 28, 1957, growing up in a middle class area of Paris. Her family visited Dublin on holiday several times before, while Sophie was just a teenager, and she fell in love with Ireland and also learned to speak English there. Several years later, moving on with her life, Sophie got married to her first husband. She then divorced and had a young son named Pierre-Louis. She was working at the actor's office at the Cannes Film Festival. This is where she met her second husband, Daniel Tuscan du Plantier, in 1990. He was a popular film producer. The couple married on June 18th of the following year, 1991. Miss Tuscan de Plantier was said to be so nervous she misspelled her married name. Quote, she was a natural girl, Mr. Pierre-André Butang, a director of art television channel, told Paris Match magazine. Quote, she looked athletic, not sophisticated, but very naturally pretty. She didn't want to be just the wife of a famous producer, so I encouraged her to become a TV producer. She took me at my word. End quote. One of Miss Tuscan de Plantier's close friends also spoke secretively to this French newspaper, said she was an archaeologist of the flesh, fascinated by genealogy, in love with life. She was at the same time serious and wonderfully light-hearted, incapable of being pedantic but cultivated, precise, honest, always on the right wavelength, a true artist, she was efficient and inspired confidence, she added. In the year of 1993, Sophie had bought a lovely niche hideaway holiday home in a very quiet and reclusive area in Janan, Torremore, which is located outside Skull, County Cork, Ireland. The very picturesque village of Skull is the main village of the Mizzenhead Peninsula, 
Ireland's southernmost point, with miles of rugged coastlines, hidden coves, tiny piers and beautiful scenery, craggy hills and also beaches of sand and stone with lovely wild Atlantic views. Skull is the place where many people and tourists escape to for a retreat from hectic city lives to rest and revive themselves with activities in the fresh sea air, such as sailing, surfing, diving, whale watching, island hopping, bird watching, kayaking or just messing about in boats in the dainty picturesque harbour. Sophie would go to this holiday home she bought with her husband a few times a year at least, to recuperate from her lavish, busy movie lifestyle in Paris. She felt very safe and secure there, as it was situated practically in the middle of nowhere, you might think. It was like her second home. Daniel, her husband, would not visit the holiday home as much due to work commitments. Sophie planned to fly into Cork, Ireland on December the 20th, 1996, intending to have a small break, but also to work on a film project and leaving her husband behind so he could work as well. Newspaper articles contradicts earlier reports of a marriage that had gone cold. It wasn't estranged, but they seemed to have somewhat of an open arrangement between themselves, reportedly. Back in France, Sophie had set up an office of Le Champ Blancs, the production company she founded, on the top floor of the home she shared with Daniel Tuscan de Plantier in the city Malchabs on Paris's right bank. The night before her departure for Ireland, she went with her husband to a Paris nightclub where his film company Unifrance held its annual Christmas party. Those who met Sophie there at the gathering found her, quote, radiant, in top form and playful. It is also quoted that she talked with her friends at every table. One guest at the party told Paris Match magazine. Also, quote, but she always came back to the table where Daniel was sitting at. When Sophie eventually landed in Cork Airport on December the 20th, 1996, she picked up a rented car. It was a silver Ford Fiesta. She then travelled to a Texaco filling station to buy wood for the fire and she also bought petrol for the car. In the time between 3.30 and 4pm, she dined at a restaurant called the Courtyard Bar in Skull. After this, she drove to her holiday farmhouse up a long rugged laneway. Sophie had a brief telephone call with the caretaker of her holiday home and nothing else strange happened that day. She intended to return to France to spend Christmas Day with her husband Daniel in Paris. On the 22nd of December, Sophie went shopping for food locally and also withdrew cash from the ATM and then returned back to the holiday home. At 4.30pm, she was seen outside her house and she spent the evening of December 22nd at home. She spoke to Josephine Helen, a local woman who looked after her house, at 10pm and an hour later she had phoned her husband, by which time she was preparing to go to bed. On the next morning, the 23rd of December 1996, the weather was very dull and dreary in the West Cork countryside. A local man, Martin O'Sullivan, set off from his home in Goleen on the morning two days before Christmas Day. It was just after 7.30am as he made his way to drive along the quiet road to Doris, passing a bendy narrow road that leads to the whitewashed home of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. As he drove along north towards Bantry Cork, leaving the French filmmaker's secluded farmhouse behind, a blue Ford shot up behind him and speeding towards him. Martin was then forced to slam on the brakes as the car passed him on a sharp bend and nearly ran him into a ditch. He noticed its headlights were on and the rear number plate was red. He believed it was a blue Ford car. It was then after 10am on Monday, December the 23rd, the same morning, Shirley Foster, another local, a neighbour of Sophie's, was leaving her home at Turmore in order to do some last-minute Christmas shopping in Skull. It was just a typical Irish winter's morning. There was a touch of frost on the ground and while the morning had been fresh and clear, dark clouds above warned of rain showers later on in the day.
Miss Foster lived on a hillside that had fantastic views. Behind the property were spectacular views west towards Dunmanus Bay. In winter, this area of Cork could be seen as very isolating and unwelcoming. West Cork communities are used to keeping themselves to themselves, but even by local standards, this very small Turmore community was quite separate from the more liveliness of the local habitation. At the bottom of the hill, at the side of the laneway, leading from her home towards Sophie's property and the main road, Miss Foster noticed what she thought was a pile of clothes scattered on the ground outside on the laneway near the bushes. It was unusual enough to catch her attention. As she slowed down to take the left-hand turn, something made her look again. And then she realised that the object wasn't a pile of clothes. Rather, it seemed to appear to be a human body lying very still by the gate. Feeling anxious, she looked again to make sure and was shocked and appalled to see that it was a body with noticeable bloodstains. She rushed back to her home as fast as she could to raise the alarm and report what she found to the guardie. She also told her partner Alfie Lyons of the haunting discovery. Together they began to quickly check all of the neighbours to make sure that everyone was safe and accounted for at the time. The first Garda car arrived quickly at the secluded scene shortly before 10.40am. The two officers in attendance were Sergeant Ger Prendeville and Garda Bill Byrne. They were careful not to contaminate the scene, but they were able to confirm that this emergency did involve a dead body. One look was enough to see what a post-mortem would later verify. The individual was a young female and had suffered a brutal and savage attack. A careful further examination of the scene suspected that the woman involved had likely died after a terrible struggle with somebody outside the home. So harsh were the wounds to the body and head that it was not immediately obvious what type of weapon had been used. However, a concrete block was lying just two metres away from the body. Both Gardi inspected the block and to their horror, what looked like bloodstains was found on its edges. The Gardaí, who are the Irish police, also came across spotted bloodstains on a nearby gate and a piece of clothing caught on a barbed wire fence. There was another blood smear found on the back door. Inside the house, there did not seem to be a disturbance other than the bed wasn't made and it seemed that Sophie had a visitor that night as two wine glasses were found drying beside the kitchen sink. They could see outside that the woman lying in front of them was wearing walking boots. However, she also appeared to be wearing a dressing gown as if she had been getting ready for bed, something that many people who later attended the scene thought highly unusual given the distance the body was found from the house. Gardie wondered whether the woman had been chased from her home by an intruder. They thought she had probably been living locally because she could not have run or walked very far, dressed as she was on that cold December night. Local people were shocked and saddened by the news that fell on them, and a full investigation was underway now. There have been no serious crimes recently in the area, having a very low crime rate. Little did the locals realise what kind of twist, turns and unsolved mystery this murder would become to be. Let's see, will anybody be incriminated for this? On the morning of the murder, a local journalist, Ian Bailey, who was originally from England, was living with his partner four miles from the crime scene and was doing odd jobs writing for different newspapers, mostly local papers. It was in Cork, Ireland, where he met his partner, Jules Thomas. Ian was a tenant at her residence at first, but then they became lovers and moved in together permanently after a while of seeing each other. Ian said on the day of the murder, he received a phone call from another journalist he was working with at around 14.40pm on Monday the 23rd of December. He asked him to go and investigate a story and he would meet him later on at the scene. He said he was given very basic information, 
only there had been an unnatural death or a murder of a woman, foreign national, possibly French. However, the journalist who spoke to Ian gave a statement saying he did not say what nationality she was. Ian said this is false. Jules, his partner, reiterated and said they weren't given a name or information on the victim, so Ian suggested to her that they wait for the two o'clock news on RTE, where they heard that the victim was a French woman. Ian was working for a few years with someone in the area who had a French neighbour, so they assumed to know where this was and they drove up there to figure out what the situation was. Ian wanted to drive up there with Jules as she was a professional photographer at the time. When interviewed, Jules was asked how did Ian know where he was going. Jules said she just had a hunch that she thought it was the only French person Ian could think of in the area, so off they went. Ian said he only ever seen Sophie from a far distance in the house she lived in. He never met her face to face. Jules and Ian were among the first people on the crime scene and Ian said that he seen a lot of activity going on and then he asked the guards was there any information that they could give him as he was working as a journalist in the area. The guards declined and said to wait for the press bureau in due course. Jules proceeded to take photographs of the murder scene as this was happening. Ian said that he then left to go to the local post office. He said he found out the name of the victim through the local postmistress. The Gardaí later identified the body as Sophie Tuscon de Plantier. She was 39 and a film producer from France. The body was left covered for 24 hours over plastic covers until the pathologist arrived. He was on Christmas vacation at the time, therefore he was late on the scene. He concluded that she died of multiple blows to the head with a blunt object. She also had self-defence wounds on her hands and arms and scratches from the bushes and brambles. No exact time of death could be determined as the body was left out for too long before being collected by the ambulance. Gardy also appealed to anybody in West Cork who they might have seen with scratches or torn up clothes at the time or after the murder. Bailey then went and reported for the murder on two Irish newspapers, The Star and The Sunday Tribune. Gardy said he reported on facts of the case that indicated he knew more about Sophie's injuries than anybody else. Ian claims he got the information of the murder from a photographer he worked with in Bantry and the Gardy also offered him certain information, as well as journalists from small town gossip essentially. The investigators launched a door-to-door inquiry. They handed out a questionnaire for the people of school to figure out strange happenings going on in the area. They also took DNA and fingerprint samples from some locals, including Bailey and his partner, on the basis that Sophie might have had hair in her hand at the crime scene. Gardie cross-checked the airline passenger list on the flight Sophie was on as well to see if any suspects could be from Ireland or France. Over 50 suspects were eliminated, including her husband, a lover and neighbours, so suspicion then fell onto Bailey within the next 10 days. As it was reported that Sophie had a struggle before her death, Bailey was seen to have had scratches on his face and arms seen by people after the murder, including Gardie. Two guards came to question Bailey on this issue and Bailey said there was an entirely innocent explanation for the scratches on his face and arms. On the day before the murder, he had killed three turkeys for the Christmas dinner. Bailey also said he had cut down a tree for Christmas and the splinters also caused these peculiar scratches. His partner accepted this explanation as well. How does one get scratched in the face by a turkey when you're killing it? Well, first of all, I wasn't... In in the process of what I do with... When I did do the turkeys in, as it were, uh, I put their feet into a little loop and hung them from a a hook in the shed. And in doing so, as I was trying to get the feet into the hook, one of the the feet uh, just sort of glanced across the top of my head, but that was not on my face. It was in my hairline, and it wasn't a particularly, um, it was a, a light scratch. 
And then the next job we had to do on the Sunday was we decided because of the price of Christmas trees, we would actually take the top off a Sitka spruce. I would climb up the tree, use the saw, take off the top of the tree and then drag it down. And that was then going to become our, our Christmas tree. And he got some scratches on his arm from cutting the tree. And you know when you get a comb and you just drag it across your skin? It was the finest, like, little needly scratches, very, very parallel and very fine, you know, as if you drew a comb across your arm. These then become exaggerated into something approaching briar or bramble scratches, which they were not. Bailey said his scratches then suddenly became exaggerated by the detectives to being that of being scratched by brambles and bushes close to that of the crime scene where Sophie was found. It didn't take long for the national media to catch up with Bailey to be the prime suspect. Bailey said he heard from the other journalists that the story was coming out but the journalists wouldn't reveal their sources. Bailey was getting very frustrated at this stage, so he sarcastically said to the journalist, Oh well, of course I did it then. Seven weeks later, a story was published on the front page headlines of every Irish newspaper. Gardy visited Ian and Jules' house and arrested both of them on the suspicion of murder of Sophie Tuscan Duplantier. When being interrogated for around six hours, Bailey said on the night of the murder he went to the galley pub with Jules. He said there was a traditional Irish night on. He said he played the baron. It was quite a busy night coming up to Christmas. Jules said that they both stayed there until quite late and it was about midnight or half twelve by the time they left. However, Bailey then changed his story. At first, he said he slept all night after coming home from the pub. Then, he said he got up in the middle of the night to write as he had a story deadline the following Monday. Then, he went back to bed. To add too much confusion, Jill said that she can't remember if he got up or not. Bailey says he regrets not saying this statement first because now suspicion landed on him. It was put to Bailey and his partner by a journalist investigating the case. Why didn't anyone notice the scratches as he was out drinking or on that day until after the murder? Ian replied that he was wearing long sleeves that covered most of the scratches up and Jules said that she didn't pay attention because his long hair concealed a lot of it. During the interrogation, Gardy and a witness placed Ian near the crime scene at a time when Bailey said he was at home. Marie Farrell located Bailey a mile and a half from the scene at Kilfadder Bridge at 3am. This was going to be central to the case. Bailey and Jules were later released without charge and Gardy wrote to the DPP saying there was sufficient evidence for this arrest. Bailey was now public enemy number one. They had their suspect, but there was not enough physical evidence. Gardie have arrested two people in connection with the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier in West Cork. The two, a man and a woman, are being questioned at Bandon Garda Station. The man was arrested this morning. The woman was detained this afternoon. Gardie began a murder hunt after Madame Duplantier was found dead outside her holiday home near Skull before Christmas. The investigation into the brutal killing of Madame Sophie Toscan Duplantier has been going on for seven weeks. Two days before Christmas, her body was found in the narrow laneway in front of her holiday home at Tourmore near Skull in West Cork. She'd arrived there to spend the Christmas period alone. A major investigation has been ongoing since, with teams of detectives scouring the countryside for the murder weapon and carrying out detailed forensic examinations of the area. This morning came the first breakthrough, when a man was arrested in West Cork and taken to Bandon Garda Station. More than a thousand people have been interviewed by Gardaí during the course of their investigations, but this is the first time anybody has been arrested and formally questioned at Bandon Garda Station, the headquarters of the investigation. The man is believed to be in his 40s and has been living in West Cork for some time. 
He's already been held for a period of six hours, which has been extended until tonight. A decision will have to be made about 11 o'clock whether to charge or release him. This afternoon, a woman was also detained and brought to Bandon Garda Station, where she is still being questioned. Senior Garda officers are now in conference at the station. Fast forward to just over a year later, Bailey was arrested again and then released without charge. The DPP, or the Central Prosecutions, told the investigators that a second arrest of Jules was unlawful. The detective still arrested her anyway. No evidence to a judge would be presented until the year 2003, where Bailey went on to sue seven Irish newspapers for libel and defamation of character. The paper said that they did in fact say he was a suspect, but did not accuse him of being Sophie's murderer. To defend themselves, the papers were given a Garda file on Bailey. Many of the paper's witnesses had already previously volunteered statements to the Gardaí. Marie Farrell, as we know, being one of these key witnesses, testified that she seen Bailey on the Kilfadder Bridge, and she also said Bailey allegedly tried to get her to change her story, claiming harassment and intimidation. Another witness, who was 14 at the time of the murder, said he was taking a lift back home from school with Bailey, and on the way home, he claimed that Ian said that he smashed her head in. Bailey would say that this was something he said as a joke to the witness and that he said it out of irony. This was becoming a growing theme of Bailey's defence from witness accounts. Two further witnesses, a couple living in school at the time of the murder, said Bailey had visited them in their kitchen one evening socialising. It is alleged by one of these witnesses that Bailey put his arms around one of them being really upset, possibly intoxicated, and said, I did it, I went too far. Was this an irony as well? Bailey seems to think so anyway. After the libel trial, Bailey was awarded €8,000 in damages, but he paid €200,000 of this for legal fees to the newspapers. As this didn't seem to be a justifiable result for Bailey, he then appealed to the High Court where he won a decent settlement and received €70,000. However, during the libel trial, it was the evidence that was revealed of Bailey violently abusing his partner Jules on three separate occasions over the years after the murder, which further shocked the Irish nation. She sustained a black eye, swollen cheekbone and swollen chin, cuts to the lip, bruised arms and legs. Jules has stood by Ian despite this and blames the stress of the trial and both of them drinking lots of alcohol that brought on this violent rage. She also insists it has never happened since, years later, and even trusts Bailey with her own life. I know he was very sorry he did it, that it was something that happened very quickly and was over in a flash and it should never have happened. He's actually so remorseful about what he did to me. But he did it again and then again. Yes, I know, we kept drinking. It was a problem. Violence, you can't really contest that, can you? Uh, No, but it has to be taken in context. Is there a context for domestic violence? Well, there there was in my case because I I was irresponsible with alcohol. I was irresponsible with whiskey. The third time he was, he'd broken his Achilles tendon snapped it and he was on serious painkillers and he drank on top of those so I don't think he really knew what he was doing hardly the third time. Isn't that a bit pat though just blaming spirits and not a question of character? Well I mean all I know is that I I, I was irresponsible in the extreme and I've accepted responsibility. Well he hasn't touched me in 12 years or whatever it is. You know, he's he's never, after the last time, he's never made any. Meanwhile, in France, Sophie's family sadly found out about her death through the media. At first, Sophie's family were extremely supportive of the investigation, but then as the inquiry began to stall between the years of 97 to 98, they started to criticise as to why the detectives haven't been able to find any other suspects into the murder inquiry.
Communication was not good between the authorities and Sophie's relatives and a dispute began between the two of them because they were denied a file to Sophie's case. In 2002, a new team of Irish detectives reviewed the case and found nothing new to support the case. Sophie's family then filed a civil lawsuit against Bailey for the wrongful death of Sophie. However, they dropped the case as there was insufficient evidence. Then, in 2005, in a sudden change of events, the investigator's case against Bailey had hit a massive wall. Marie Farrell, who was the key witness for spotting Bailey on the bridge, suddenly changed her story, completely out of the blue. She made an appearance on primetime and she was interviewed as to why this happened. She said she was withdrawing the statement saying it was complete bullshit. Ian said he received a phone call from his solicitor Frank Buttimer. The solicitor said Marie contacted him and wanted to tell him the truth. Her truth was now that she was pressurised to make false statements allegedly by the Gardaí against Bailey for the murder and she could not tolerate it any more. In July 2008, Sophie Toscan du Plantier's body was exhumed in the south of France after French authorities were assigned the case investigating her death. Eric Dupont Moretti, the criminal lawyer hired by the victim's family, told the Irish Times that she expects Judge Gachon in France to conduct a thorough murder investigation. A campaign group, the Association for the Truth About the Death of Sophie, has provided Mr Dupont Moretti with the names and addresses of most of the witnesses in a related libel trial in Cork in December 2003. Judge Gasson apparently hopes to build a case strong enough to justify the issuance of a European arrest warrant. If a warrant is issued, it is up to the Garda to arrest the suspect. He could challenge the warrant in an Irish court. Mr Gazzo said that if there was no result by the end of this year that the family would go to the European level, French authorities came to the conclusion that Bailey should be arrested and tried for the murder in France. This would be allowed as Sophie was a French citizen. Since then, after a failed attempt to extradite Bailey for questioning in 2010, French authorities are now looking to extradite him for a trial. He has been charged with voluntary homicide. The French indictment against Bailey said, Spontaneity of Farrell's retraction of her statement are very doubtful. The indictment said if it's certain on the day of and a few hours after the murder that Ian Bailey bore traces of the same injuries, including scratches as the victim, the reason he could not explain them. French authorities also said in the document that the cutting of the trees and the killing of the turkeys could not have caused these scratches witnessed by locals of the area. Bailey also has no alibi. This is what the French authorities concluded. Bailey challenged his extradition after a European warrant was brought out to arrest him. He argued that this indictment document should not be given into evidence. A Garda dossier describing the events of the Tuscan du Plantier investigation was published in 2001 and this was presented to Bailey's lawyer and he used it to fight the extradition case. It revealed that the investigation from start to finish was a complete shambles. This dossier also concluded that they could not prosecute him because of Marie being an unreliable witness as she retracted her statement. In 2014, Bailey tried to sue the Gardaí and the Irish state for his wrongful arrest and extradition. The judge ruled that the jury should not see the dossier and Detective Barron's opinion of the investigation. Bailey lost the case. Bailey said he is a victim of a Garda conspiracy. The jury were played phone calls between investigators that were interrogating Bailey, but these are now too old to be admitted into evidence. Moving on to two years later, the High Court did examine these phone call tapes which showed that detectives did show some intent to modify Bailey's story. 
The High Court's decision to deny Bailey's extradition could still mean that he could face trial in absentia if the French are unsuccessful to extradite him. He will be tried anyway. Bailey is now fighting to have the trial in Ireland. Bailey from school, County Cork as well, was convicted of the murder in his absence by a court in Paris in May 2019. The three-judge court imposed a 25-year sentence. His lawyer Ronan Munro said that he has an ironclad and unassailable right not to be surrendered to French authorities as two previous extradition attempts have been struck down by the Irish courts. Bailey, who appeared in the Dublin court wearing a navy suit and green scarf as a face covering, did not speak as he listened from the back of the courtroom. Oscar-nominated Irish film director Jim Sheridan attended the sitting as he is understood to be making a documentary about the case. Mr Bailey to this day has still consistently protested his innocence in relation to the killing of the French mother of one. The Manchester-born poet was convicted in absentia by a French court of the killing in 2019 but has repeatedly claimed that attempts were made to frame him for the crime. Mr Bailey described the Paris proceedings as a farce and a show trial. The French have sought and failed to secure his extradition three times since 2010. The Bantry District Court adjournment was for legal reasons and the availability of the hearing judge. Here is an audio file of Bailey's reaction of being on trial in absentia in France. I'm, I'm, I'm greatly, greatly imperiled here. Uh, I know that it, I have nothing to do with this. Um, and I'm going to finish up a, 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 a convicted murderer. I'm actually an innocent man. And what will happen in France is that they will probably celebrate the fact that I have been convicted, but and, and believe me to be the killer, but all that I've succeeded in doing is convicting an innocent man. I'm facing into a very grim, dark period of my life. And yet at the same time, I know there are people here in, in Ireland and in Bantry and even very close by to the hotel we're in, who know that I have nothing to do with this. And short of a, a miracle or an intervention and some new information coming out, it would appear inevitable that at a point later this year I'll become a convicted murderer in France, looking at a date in May when my life, the tectonic plates of my life are going to shift hugely. And I don't know how I'm going to, how, I don't know how I'm going to handle it. Here's what Pierre-Louis, Sophie's son, had to say after the trial's verdict. The judgment is very clear. With all the elements of proof, Jan Bailey is a murderer and he killed my mother 22 years ago. So it's a victory for the justice, it's a victory for the truth, and now Ireland will have to extradite Jan Bailey and we will put all the pressure everywhere to get the justice done. The justice had been set and now the justice had to be done in France, in Ireland, wherever. And we must denounce it. How do you feel today? I feel not good. I feel I have a big emotion for my mother, and the truth is very important for us, for her, for all the people who lived around this monster. Monster. So. We are, we are happy. We are happy. Last November 2020, Judge John King heard detailed legal submissions on Mr Bailey's behalf from Emmett Boyle, instructed by solicitor Ray Hennessy. 
Written legal submissions are now being made on various matters arising. The counts all arise from an alleged incident on August the 25th, 2019, near Skull County, Cork. Mr Bailey was stopped by Gardee while driving at Skull Townsland, outside the West Cork village, and was later taken to Bantry Garda Station. He was subsequently released without charge. Mr Bailey later appeared before the Bantry District Court on four summonses on the basis of samples taken by Gardee and sent for further analysis. He faces one summons over allegedly driving while under the influence of cannabis, two summons over the alleged possession of cannabis and one summons for allegedly allowing his vehicle to be used for the possession of drugs, namely cannabis. The court was told a small tin of cannabis was allegedly recovered after Mr Bailey had been stopped in his Toyota Verso car by Gardee at a local checkpoint. Three rolled up joints were later allegedly found in his vehicle when it was searched the following day. Mr Bailey has pleaded not guilty to a total of four charges. Mr Boyle, on Mr Bailey's behalf, has challenged a number of issues in respect of the matter, including how the alleged drugs were found, and why the keys of Mr Bailey's car were retained by officers, and why the vehicle was moved from the roadside field entrance where it was parked to the Garda station, and why it was only searched the following day. The matter was adjourned for a month. Nowadays, Bailey is a successful poet. Having published two successful volumes of poetry and is now the focus of a number of books and two high-profile documentaries. A television documentary by Academy Award-nominated director Jim Saradin and investigative journalist Donal McIntyre is scheduled to get its world premiere in April, reportedly. But was this all a conspiracy? It's only fair to look at this from all perspectives. I have looked into some articles which I will link below, and this is what I found. In the days that followed after the murder when Sophie's body was found, Martin O'Sullivan, a local, gave a statement to the Gardaí about the suspicious car he had seen, nearly putting him in the ditch, essentially. He told them he was fairly certain it was a local car. It was a very important sighting that happened close to the time and place of the murder and could be a massive clue to the case. O'Sullivan thought the investigators would follow up with this inquiry but they never did seemingly. Why was this? Did they have a motive in protecting the identity of the driver? It is just one of the numerous conflicting findings in the investigation which many people in Cork and across Ireland now believe was marred by a Garda conspiracy. There is a forming hypothesis that the prosecution of Ian Bailey by the Garda, which has continued since 96, may have been motivated by something more menacing than the need to find a suspect to just please the Bournel family, the de Plantier family and the authorities in France. Other allegations have come out of the woodwork that a senior member of the Irish police may have been responsible for Sophie Tuscan de Plantier's death. The officer at the centre of these claims, who has now passed on, was known to be a very volatile person and a sexual predator, notorious for having multiple affairs with women, in particular foreigners. Reportedly a married man who was especially attractive, but he was a raging alcoholic who was described as having abused his power whenever and wherever it was available to him. One local saying he was as crooked as a ram's horn. He also drove a blue Ford car. It is believed the Garda may have come into contact with Sophie because of her fears about drug dealing in the countryside close to her holiday home. Some in the area claim he had a sexual relationship with her, whose love life was complicated, but he was initially rejected by her. All this could be small-town gossip, though. The violent method of the murder has always been thought of as a crime of passion perpetrated by a bitter lover. The Garda in question was not involved in any of the investigation inquiries. On his deathbed, it is reported he was said to be a profoundly disturbed man. The shocking allegations against him, however, remain unsubstantiated. 
It would seem to the opposing side that the Gardaí were keen to harness the narrative of what might have happened to Sophie. Allegedly, they ignored the fact that she had a guest in her home in the hours before her murder, squashing rumours that two rinsed wine glasses had been found beside the kitchen sink. In his book about the case called Death in December, Michael Sheridan said the wine glass story was a myth. He was supposedly assisted in his research by the Gardaí, but images from the crime scene refuted this claim, and the two wine glasses were indeed found draining in the kitchen. More suspicious still was the fact that no fingerprints were found on the glasses, at least according to the Gardaí. Apart from allegedly targeting Bailey, the destruction of vital evidence from the crime scene allegedly supports the theory that the investigation was deliberately botched, cross-contaminated or probably destructed as they thought it wasn't important enough. The perplexing loss of a five-bar blood-splashed iron gate from the entrance to Duplantier's property has never been explained, nor has anyone been disciplined for it. Did the gate disappear because there were blood and fingerprints belonging to the suspect on it, or did they simply not need it anymore? The Gardaí have allegedly also never accounted for the loss of witness statements and suspect files, as well as a document outlining why Bailey and his partner Jules were to be suspects. A bottle of wine found at the crime scene is also suspected to have disappeared as well as a small red hatchet kept inside the doorway of Sophie's home, which her housekeeper Josie noticed was missing. Reportedly, fresh skid marks on the laneway where she was found suggest a visitor had arrived and left in a hurry, but they do not appear to have been identified. Did they belong to the Ford seen speeding nearby shortly before her remains were found or was it belonging to Sophie's car? No one will ever know. Also, given the number of injuries inflicted on Sophie and the viciousness of the attack, it seems incomprehensible that the killer did not leave a single trace of hair, skin, blood, saliva or clothing at the scene, yet Gardy claimed no such materials were found. Sophie reportedly had a clump of hair in her tightly clenched hand, which they said was hers. Was this true or not? The timeline of events presented by officers is also somewhat contrary. They said that Sophie's remains were found by her neighbours Shirley and Alfie at the bottom of their shared lane at 10.10am. Gardy arrived shortly afterwards at 10.38am. Shockingly, it would be a lengthy 24 hours before pathologist John Harbison arrived to carry out the post-mortem. But because the body was exposed to the harsh environments for the whole day and night, a time of death could not be established. Sophie's and Daniel's marriage may not have been an ideal one, but the notion that her husband ordered a hitman to kill her is unlikely, as he seems to have been more focused on his filming project rather than worrying about his wife's affairs. It was he who bought the isolated farmhouse for her in 93, but rarely came with her when she visited. Sophie was said to have been worried about local drug dealing going on in the nearby countryside and could have made some untrustworthy enemies from this. Individuals who may have been in the pockets of certain Gardaí who had dirt on them, allegedly. Since 1996, the Gardaí have sought out Ian Bailey to be the prime suspect, spending millions in public money in the process, but failing to produce concrete evidence against him. In 2010, Leo Bolger was presented to the judge, Patrick J. Moran, in Cork Circuit Court, charged with running a drug farm near Duplantier's home. During the hearing, an investigator described his cannabis system as the most sophisticated ever witnessed in West Cork. Bolger, 45 at the time, had built a large den in an overground part of his land where he grew the cannabis plants using advanced technology such as heating, watering and lighting systems that centred around the plants to make them grow quicker. At the time, the street value of the plants was at least €150,000. Bolger pleaded guilty to this crime which carried a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years and up to life imprisonment. However, the prosecuting Garda informed the judge that the defendant had been assisting them with another case. Bolger was given a suspended sentence. 
Bolger had been allegedly assisting Gardy in their case against Bailey. Bolger, who had done odd jobs for Sophie, sometimes, claimed Ian was present at the property one day in 93 when he saw her nearest neighbour, Alfie Lyons, introducing her to Bailey in person. Bolger only revealed this some 14 years after the murder. Alfie Lyons, who allegedly is a cannabis user, made a similar claim to Gardy about Bailey in the weeks after the murder. Bailey accepts he was present in Lyons' garden about 18 months before the murder and that Sophie was pointed out to him in the distance by Lyons, but he consistently denied ever meeting her or being introduced to her in person. The most notable documented evidence was the dossier about the Duplantier case written by the Office of the DPP Prosecutions in November 2001. It was ruthless in its assessment of the Garda investigation and revealed criticism about the number of conflicting statements taken from certain witnesses. It was withheld from Bailey for almost a decade. Among the witnesses referred to was the one and only Marie Farrell, who said she was allegedly coerced by Gardy into making a statement wrongly identifying Bailey as the man she claimed to have seen at the Kilfadder Bridge. In 2005, she backtracked her statement saying Gardy had blackmailed her into making a statement against Bailey. She said the Gardy pursued her to make false allegations and provided her with a Garda mobile phone for discussing the case. It is also reported that Martin Graham, an ex-British soldier, convicted criminal and drug user living in West Cork, was also handled by the Gardaí to incriminate Bailey by getting him on his good side. In return, Graham said he was given a significant amount of cannabis in a Garda evidence bag, putchin and cash, allegedly. Officers also offered to buy him clothes and said Duplantier's family would be very grateful for a favourable statement that would link Bailey to the murder. The prosecution's office report said there was no viable proof to convict Ian Bailey and said that a prosecution was not needed. It stated that when the Gardaí had first started to target Bailey in the days after the murder, he had obliged and offered his fingerprints and blood for DNA analysis, even though he was under no legal obligation to do so. The prosecution office also stated that being a crime reporter and aware of the nature of the forensic evidence, Bailey would have known that the murderer must have left traces of blood, skin, clothing fibres or hair at the scene. So to offer his own DNA at that point then suggested his innocence. The DPP's report found that the arrest and detention of Bailey's long-term partner Jules Thomas for the murder was very unlawful and that she was arrested in order to obtain information which could be used against Bailey. In their panic to have Bailey prosecuted, Gardy reportedly spread a lot of gossip and bad news about him. Local people were reportedly made to feel that they, if they showed any support for Bailey, they would suffer the wrath of the Gardaí. The Gardaí may have also used the media to spread lies about their suspect, inverted quotes, and many reporters went along with it without asking any questions. So were Sophie's family so convinced that Bailey was the killer due to the media propaganda? The officer in charge of assisting with authorities in France in the early stages was disgraced former Commissioner Martin Callanan, whose career would eventually be brought to an end by the case in 2014. The strange events leading up to his resignation were ignited by the discovery in 2013 of phone call tapes secretly recorded at Bandon Garda Station, where the Duplantier investigation was stationed. These included 36 conversations between Gardy and Marie Farrell, and about 18 of these recordings with Martin Graham. They only came to light as a result of a discovery order by Ian Bailey's legal team. In March 2014, on the day the government revealed the existence of these secret recordings, Callanan resigned with immediate effect. It subsequently emerged that he sought permission to destroy the tapes, but the Attorney-General at the time, Myra Whelan, ordered him not to. 
On the day before Callanan's resignation, she informed the Taoiseach at the time, Enda Kenny, of her belief that Gardi had been involved in widespread illegal activity and corruption. This led to the start-up of the Fennelly Commission. It resulted in that the Gardi were prepared to, quote, contemplate altering, modifying or suppressing evidence, end quote. That went against their claim that Bailey was responsible for the murder. Myra originally told the Commission that the phone tapping scandal involved a complete violation of the law by Gardi and was a total disregard for the rights of citizens. But a spectacular U-turn followed when she changed her story and said she had exaggerated the facts and regretted her statement. As the public are very aware of the corruption surrounding politicians and the Gardaí, what looked like retribution materialised last year when Whelan was appointed as a judge to the Court of Appeal. The development massively backfired in the Doyle. Proper procedures had been ignored and it emerged that she had not even applied for the position properly and it was just handed to her on the cuff. The government was accused of rank coinism by the opposition. Fina Foyle said the law had been circumvented and that there would be consequences for their confidence and supply agreement with Fina Gale. However, these were just empty threats and nothing was done about it. Whelan's promotion dovetailed in with Leo Varadkar's first week in office as Taoiseach. The government must have known that the controversial promotion risked the stability of the government, yet they went ahead with it anyway. Was this because Whelan had done them a favour by toning down her original claims about Garda criminality, or could it have been because she became aware of the unlawful measures Gardi had taken to implicate Bailey in a crime he did not commit reportedly? Here is some food for thought though. Are people starting to ask why the Irish force were so gung-ho to set up a man with no concrete evidence in the crime? And why are so many witness accounts uncorroborated and conflicting? And why did they claim not to find any DNA belonging to the real suspect when he must have left a trace? And why did they lose so much evidence including a large iron gate? Is there another killer out there or is Ian Bailey the actual killer? And another thing, why is Ian Bailey's case a huge distraction with who we should be really thinking about, and that is Sophie Tuscan Duplantier. Thank you for listening to this episode of Incriminated. I'm your host, Francesca Hayes. You can find us on Instagram at incriminatedpod. Or you can find us on Twitter at incriminatedpo1. We are now on YouTube now and you can search it by Incriminated True Crime Podcast. Intro music is by Owen Leonard and other music is by Mivavi Editor Plus. research links and accredited journalists will be linked down below in the episode details. For any requests you can also email at incriminatedpod.yahoo.com and I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Enjoy the rest of your week and take care.